of you who are regulars know that we are in the Gospel of John. Sonny just read our passage for today. And, uh, and it is our practice here out of conviction to study through books of the Bible in an expository way. And what I mean by that is that we open the Word of God together, and the goal is that I would not just share funny stories and keep you laughing and entertained, but that I would teach you the Word of God as it is revealed in Scripture. Today is one of those days that uh, I probably, had we not chosen and had a conviction about teaching through books of the Bible, I might have jumped over this passage. Today's verse is controversial, and you're going to see why in just a moment. But it is good for God's teachers and God's people to study through books because it holds them accountable to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. And so I think that uh, we're going to see some things that we might wrestle with internally and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. And so um, if it feels like you're getting fed steak and you haven't been able to chew it all up and you're having to swallow and you're about to choke, that might be more uh, because of the text that we're in today. Hopefully, I can give it to you in bite sizes and we can uh, move forward. The question or my, my title for the sermon is how the Father draws us to Christ. And you see, if you look in your Bible at John 6, 44, I'd like for you to look at that verse because it all kind of hinges on this verse, what we're studying today. John 6, 44 says, No man comes to the Father but through me. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, Nobody comes to God unless the Father draws him. Nobody comes to, to me unless the Father draws him. And so that can be taken a few different ways, honestly. Before we uh, dive into the controversy, let me show you where we're going. There should be a slide. It should have two points on it. And the, the two points are we're going to talk about the Jewish impulse to grumble and not believe and how we are very similar to that. And then the second point comes straight out of John 6, 43 through 45, and it's how the Father draws and how the Father teaches. And this has everything to do with how it is that we actually become Christians. And so... Let's talk about the controversy. It says in that text, and we've already looked at it, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. One reason that this is controversial is if you take the verse as it stands, it could mean two different things. That verse just on a cursory reading could mean two different things. On one hand... It could mean this. It could mean no one comes to Jesus without the Father drawing, and God draws everyone. Everyone comes, 
or the drawing is for everyone, but only some of those people actually come. And so, though God draws, He doesn't secure that for everybody. Only some of those people actually come. That's one way to understand John 6.44. On the other hand, and this is why it's controversial, there's basically you sitting there today and me are the final uh, impulse for the, the way salvation works. The second one is this. It could mean that no one can come to Jesus without the Father's drawing, and everyone whom he draws comes. Everyone whom he draws comes. And so what I'm saying is the decisive cause of the coming to God is God, not man in the second way to understand it. In the first way to understand it, the decisive cause, God draws, but then he leaves it to you being the decisive cause or impetus for you becoming a Christian. So, in this verse, there's two clearly different ways to understand what Jesus is saying. Now, to try to understand it and which one we believe is the biblical understanding of it. Let's, let's look at John 6, 41 through 42 together. So look there with me. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he, because he said, I am the bread that came from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And so basically, Jesus is saying, I'm God. And the Jews, are, they've followed him from the feeding of the 500. They've crossed over the sea to, to Capernaum, and they're there, and they're kind of wondering, what's in this for us? Will he do another miracle? Is there something we can get out of this? And then Jesus, knowing where their hearts are, that they're really kind of after miracles, not after him. They're after his gifts, not after the giver. He says to them, stop your grumbling. You're grumbling because you can't believe that I'm God. Only the, only the Father can help you in this situation. And if the Father draws you, then you'll know. So Jesus, it's interesting, he seems to have no problem, much unlike most of us, he seems to have no problem with conflict, especially with certain people. Matter of fact, he kind of picks fights sometimes with certain people. And you know who he picks fights with? And one way to say it, and one way that I've heard it said, is Jesus speaks the law to the proud, and he speaks grace to the humble. Law to the proud and grace to the humble. This is where he is speaking the law to the proud. He seems to not care that they hear him say, I'm the bread of life. They start to grumble, 
And he's, he doesn't give a big explanation like, well, this is what I mean by that. This is why I said that. Let me make this a little softer for you. No, he kind of keeps just moving. And they're stuck on this saying. What is, what is he saying? We know his father is Joseph. We know his mother is Mary. How could he be, how could he expect us to believe that he's really God? And so... Jesus says, stop your grumbling. The only, the only way you're going to figure this out is if the Father does something. That's the only way you're going to figure it out. Why is it that faith in Jesus seems so hard to come by? Think about it. Today, when we got up, when you got up and came to church, for every one of you that came to church, I would be willing to bet there's a hundred people that did not get up and go to church, probably more than that. And so faith in Jesus seems very hard to come by. The answer is found in their grumbling. Their grumbling is unbelief. It's unbelief in who Jesus said that he was. The core of sin is unbelief. Unbelief in who God said he is. Sin keeps us from wanting God. We have an inherited sinful nature that we get from Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sin, and from that point on, we inherit their sin nature, which includes pride, a stubborn self-will, self-reliance. Look with me. I'm not just saying this. Look with me at Scripture about what it says about our sin problem. This is why Jesus tells them to stop grumbling. He knows just how severe yours and mine and their sin problem is. In Romans 9, verses 9 through 12, look with me there. Romans 9, 9 through 12. Remember, as we're reading this, what we're talking about is how significant our sin problem is. And this is what it says in Romans 3. I mean, I said Romans 9, didn't I? Sorry. I was just trying to trick you. It's Romans 3, 9 through 12. Romans 3, 9 through 12. And actually, now he's got Romans 9 up there on the board, so disregard that. This is it. It's 3, but starting in verse 9, going through verse 12. So it's chapter 3, verse 9. Sorry. Look at what it says. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. None is righteous. No one seeks God. All turn aside. Not even one. That's what Romans 3, 9 through 12 says. And then if you flip over just a couple of pages, Galatians 4, 8 through 9. What I'm talking to you about is essentially the first part of the gospel. And you know what the gospel, the gospel basically is this. God created a people for himself. We sinned, 
And in that sin, we became separated from God for all eternity. God devises a plan with the Son and the Spirit to redeem us. And he sends Christ. And because our sin is so heinous and because our sin has so corrupted us, the only way God can bring redemption is through his Son. And his Son has to be, because it says, without the shedding of blood, there'll be no forgiveness of sins. His Son has to be killed and blood has to be spelt for us to experience eternal life. That's, that's essentially the gospel. And then it says, whoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved because you're trusting what Christ did for you on the cross to save you from your sins. But here's the problem. And you cannot understand the gospel fully until you really understand how bad our sin problem really is. And our sin problem is really, really bad. Yours too, Joseph. <clears throat> he gets older, I'll tell him that. Galatians 4, 8 and 9. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, and then catch this, or rather be known by God. Now that you've come to know God, and Paul quickly inserts, or rather be known by God. We love because he first loved us. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So it's saying in Galatians, we're enslaved to false gods before we're Christians. And then the way that we come to God is we're known by God. He says, you've come to know God or rather be known by God. So there's something there that, we're, that I'm getting at, and I'm going to make it more clear in just a minute. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, look at this. Talking about our sin nature, talking about how hopeless we are in our sin nature. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. In other words, the whole world is going that way following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to some of the wording in there about our sin. We're dead in our sins. We're following the course of the world. We're following Satan and his spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Those are, those are significant problems. What the scriptures are teaching is because of our sin, we lost it all. We didn't just lose a little bit. We have a dire problem that is separating us from a holy God. And unless something is done about our sin problem, we will spend eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. That's the reality of the gospel. So we didn't simply just lose a lot. We became slaves to sin slaves to the Spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, dead in our transgressions, dead to God and dead to the things of God. The Bible teaches our sin problem is incurable, unfixable, undeniable, and we are separated from God for all eternity. But 
with the sovereign, life-breathing, soul-saving, mind-transforming work of the Holy Spirit, there is hope. So where is our hope? Where is the peace that's going to make this life work? Ultimately, our hope is in the ability, our hope is not in the ability for me or you to cleverly figure out who Jesus is. You see that the Jews, they, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had Jesus with them in the flesh, and they couldn't figure it out. They could not figure it out. They were seeing, but they didn't see. They were hearing, but they couldn't believe. And so, back to our key text. What is Jesus saying, and why did he say it? This is what he says. 43 and 44 again. Look with me, because it is the the verse that the whole thing hinges on. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. In other words, your grumbling is doing you no good. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Don't grumble. Why? Because nobody is coming without the Father at work. In other words, Jesus is saying, all your human logic, all your reasoning, all your understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, they're they're not going to do you any good. What's got to happen is the Father must work for you to come to know me. You're not going to figure it out on your own because our sin has so corrupted us we've lost it all and so there is a truth that when I first saw this years ago my mind first and then my heart exploded with the glory of God and the amazement of God because the truth is this and it's found directly in our text The decisive impulse for your salvation, if you know the Lord, the decisive cause was the Father. The decisive reason, if you're sitting here, was not you. It was the Father. And it's clear in our text. The Father is the decisive impulse in in 43 and 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come unless the Father draws. Those words in the Greek, draws, if you look them up, it's to seize, to carry off, to pull, and to drag. You ever been to the ocean in the summer? And you're out there for a nice little swim, and you kind of realize that the tide's kind of pulling today. I've had this experience, and it's really scary. And you get caught in an undertow. And that undertow is vicious, strong, and violent. And the next thing you know, you're fighting for your life, trying to swim away from this incredible current that is just sucking you out to the sea. It's the same word in the text. No one comes to the Father unless the Father works the undertow, draws, pulls, seizes. God desires that all be saved, 
but he draws some. Now, I want to I I make a disclaimer here because I also believe that the Scriptures clearly teach something that I want you to hear loud and clear from me because I believe this as well. And there is mystery here. So when we focus in the Gospel of John on a particular work that God is doing of overcoming our blindness and rebellion for a particular people, I want you to know I'm not forgetting some of the other things that the Scriptures teach. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. That is an awesome, awesome thing. But it is also awesome and an awesome thing that as many as are appointed to eternal life believe. Acts 13.48. It is an awesome thing that God commands everyone, every person to repent. Acts 17.30. And it is also an awesome thing that God grants repentance to whom he will, 2 Timothy 2.25. It is an awesome thing that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. And it is an awesome thing that he acts decisively to draw a particular people to the truth, John 6.44. So the disclaimer that I'm giving is a corrective and it's a fuller picture while we look for a moment at the particulars of God's drawing. So notice, last week's passage says something very similar to this week. Look, look with me back at what we talked about last week in John 6, 37. Look in your Bibles at John 6, 37. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's very, very similar to what we're seeing in John 6, 44. And then next week, we're going to have more of this. John 6, 63 through 64. Look what this says. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is a little bit of help. Does your Bible say that? No. My Bible says the Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help. It's no help. The flesh is no help. The Spirit gives life. And then it says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew the beginning who those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then one last passage along these lines. John 8, 47, in a few weeks, we'll look at this. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Sometimes I'm talking to people, even sometimes my extended family, and I'm like, how can they not hear that? How do they not hear what is plain in the Scripture here? And this verse makes it really clear. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you not hear them is that you're not of God. 
Sometimes even speaking to you, I can tell, I can see it in your eyes, I can feel it in your soul. You hear the word of God. God's people hear it and they rejoice. And then I also can tell that some can't seem to hear it. And that verse is the answer. That's the reason. So the the second part and the last part of this is the Father's drawing through teaching. And when I was studying this week, this part kind of fascinated me. The question is, how how do we come to God? We hear, and the answer is in the text, we hear and learn from the Father. Look at John 6.45. So something, God does something internally in you. Look at John 6.45. It says, Jesus says, you know, you're not going to come unless the Father draws. And then he says, it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. All. Who's the all? My sheep. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Where I'm going, guys, is God the Father is doing this quiet Holy Spirit work in his people. You can't see it. I can't see it. It's mysterious. He's revealing himself, and he's revealing to us the person of Jesus Christ. So that, and that's why Jesus said, you're not going to come. You're not going to figure it out. Quit grumbling. The only way it's going to happen is if the Father does it. And the flesh is no good. Only the Spirit can teach you this. Only my Father can teach you this. And the beauty of that is if you sit here today, I promise you, if you know the God, the Father has thought about you. The Father has thought about you in eternity past, and before you were even aware, He was working in your heart. He was working in your soul, and He was bringing you to Himself. That's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And so, I hate it when the air kicks on because I have to scream louder, but I will. Thanks for turning me up. Look. Now, here's, here's where I said in my study it was interesting. The prophets. Jesus says, it is written in the prophets. What he's saying is, what I just told you about, it's not just me. The prophets said this too. Look at the prophets in Isaiah 54, 13. And I think we may have that PowerPoint. Isaiah 54, 13. He says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, and this one, the second one, I think, is the most inclusive of what I'm talking about, and probably even what Jesus was talking about. Jeremiah 31, 33, it says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, my people. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm going to put my law. So up to this point, the law was out here. Now God's saying, I'm going to take the law, and I'm going to put it in my people. 
That's what happens in the new covenant. When Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit comes, now we have that living truth written on our hearts if we are God's people. So God will teach us by his spirit. God is the decisive impulse in the work of salvation. He overcomes our rebellion. He overcomes our independence. He initiates by teaching us and revealing to us. He, in eternity past, decided you would be his. He lavishes his love on us. He devised the plan of redemption with the Son and the Holy Spirit. He then uses the Holy Spirit to write on our hearts his truth. He was mysteriously using the Spirit in time and space to work in your soul. He is the one who who convicts us of our sin so that we need a Savior. And then we respond in repentance and faith. You see what I did there? He is magnificent. He is glorious. He is to be treasured above all else. Even above my own decision to follow him, he was supreme. He is supreme. He is glorious. If you know him, it is because he knew you first and he loved you and he worked in your life. His work of salvation is a glorious work of love and grace. That's why Jesus tells them to stop grumbling. So to make it really practical and maybe even hard to get your head around, did you pray a prayer to become a Christian? So you pray and you become a Christian? Or did God work as the decisive cause, the decisive impetus in your life based on what we've seen in John 44, and then you became a Christian? Which came first? Many of y'all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to answer my question. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. The flesh does nothing. The spirit does the work, not a result of works. Why? That no man can boast in their salvation. Nobody can boast. No one can say, if you were as smart as me, and you had your act together like I do, you would become a Christian. And I became a Christian, and because I'm a Christian, my life works. If you would just do what I did, your life would work. That is baloney. That's just not true. And sometimes my family would say, you know, you've just figured it out. You've, your marriage works, your family works. It seems to work for you. 
And you know what I say? To God be the glory. Because it would not have worked if I would have been in control. I would have wrecked this thing. You know why? I'm a sinner saved by grace. And it is that grace that has given me the truth to make some things in my life work. So the decisive cause is God. And it's interesting, you know, to make one last point here. Y'all may remember when Jesus is trying to find out, he says, Peter, what are all these people saying? Who do they say that I am? You know what Peter says, don't you? You are the son of the living God. He says, you are God. And you know what Jesus says to him? Blessed are you, Peter, because only the Father could show you that. The flesh can't do it. Only God can work in a, in a way that brings the grace and the truth into our lives and changes us and transforms us into his people. So, Jesus taught it. The prophets taught this. I believe the whole counsel of God teaches what I'm teaching you today. And I want to give you five wonderful effects of the truths that I've just shared. I borrowed these from another pastor. I thought they were awesome. It's related to the exact same text. Five wonderful effects of, the so- of the God's sovereign, undeserved grace. Here they are. One, it humbles us. We did not provide the decisive impulse that brought us. God did. We came because of him. It is his drawing. I would be utterly lost. God have mercy on me if I am not humble enough to see this and admit it and exalt God. Two, it fills us with thanksgiving. Everything I have including my own coming to Christ, is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Oh, how thankful I am for the sovereign grace of God, aren't you? Three, it gives me assurance that I could never have any other way. Because if he drew me to himself freely and omnipotently with all his power, then he will keep me till the end. This is the greatest ground for assurance of your salvation you could ever have. Those who he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. That's the golden chain of salvation found in Romans 8. And then four, from this, we get our hope for the conversion of the people that we love so dearly. It doesn't do me any good to think about my my family and my friends that don't know Christ, that are outside of Christ, to think it's all up to them. I would much rather think it is up to a sovereign, benevolent, loving, omnipotent, 
all-good, powerful God that can draw them to himself. When I pray and I know someone's not a believer, I say, God, draw them. God, work in their heart. Overcome their stiff-necked rebellion like you did mine and bring them to yourself. In that, in his sovereignty and in his power, I find peace. They may seem like they could never come to God, but that would be negating the all-powerful work of God himself. And then five, the beauty of what I've taught you is that all the glory goes to God, not me, not us. This is why God saves the way he does. All glory belongs to him. In Psalm 115.1, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Not to us. Jesus, I said in the beginning, seems at points to not really care, almost like he's just really strong-arming them, but I don't believe that's true. I believe Jesus spoke mainly in, in, in the controversy that he created. He speaks to call sinners to himself and to humble the proud and to glorify his Father. This is why he lived. This is why he died. This is why he was rose again. Come to him. Be satisfied in him. Be humbled in him. Give glory. Father, 